Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Brianna Sousi. Brianna is a writer, teacher, spiritual counselor, and ritualist, and the founder of the Sacred Arts Academy, dedicated to the restoration, remembering, and everyday practice of the sacred arts. What sounds true, Brianna, who is often called by her clients and students, Miss Bree, she's written the book, Making Magic, Weaving Together the Everyday and the Extraordinary. And she's also the author of a new book called Star Child, Joyful Parenting Through Astrology where she invites us to recognize where the Zodiac's archetypes live within each of us, to honor these differences, and to joyfully raise our children by the stars. Brianna brings a searing intelligence that invites every interested person to learn more about an entire area of life that unfortunately has been relegated in many circles to the sidelines being called something like the occult, even though, in my opinion, this is an area of our life that we need to embrace in order to discover our full inner richness and humanness. Here's a very thrilling conversation with someone who is a terrific teacher and a super gifted storyteller. Take a listen, Brianna Sousi. Miss Bree, I so enjoyed our first podcast together when Sounds True released your book, Making Magic. And I'm really excited to talk to you again about your new book, Star Child. So welcome, welcome to Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy. It was awesome talking with you the first time about Making Magic. And I too am very much looking forward to discussing Star Child. So yay. Okay, let's start though with a bigger picture, which is you're the founder of the Sacred Arts Academy. For people who are hearing this term, sacred arts, what is that? So the sacred arts is a term that I started applying to what I think a lot of us would call Um, new age practices or like woo practices. So I include within the term things like ceremony and ritual, divination, working with our dreams, astrology, 
magic, of course, and prayer and blessing, as well as things like cleansing and purification. And so the idea that I had or I think I think of it more as like recollected, right? I don't really think that this is original to me. I think this is something that's been there that I saw is we have the liberal arts, right? We have for those who are familiar with them the, you know, things like math and literature, the trivium and the quadrivium classically. And so we have all of these spiritual practices, um, but we often treat them like they're separate. So I might pray but my prayers don't necessarily have anything to do with the way that I dream or the way that I think about my dreams. They don't necessarily have anything to do with the kinds of ceremonies I might use on a regular basis to mark certain occasions, right? They're separate things. And for me, that felt wrong. That that felt like it wasn't the kind of holistic understanding that I had been brought up with and that I wanted to share with other people. And so the sacred arts are my attempt to bring these things together and show how they're related. And just like the liberal arts have their own primary source materials, I would say that the sacred arts do as well and that their primary source materials are things like story and myth and fairy tales and folklore. Well, I want to take a moment, first of all, just to thank you for coming up with the term sacred arts, because, you know, at Sounds True, we've never really known how to refer to this collection of practices. And, you know, I never liked the term new age for all kinds of reasons. It brought up terrible connotations for people. And woo or woo-woo also has a kind of, especially when you get into the woo-woo, has a kind of derogatory feeling. And sacred arts, it's such an elevated, beautiful term. So my hat off to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I felt the same way. I thought new age was a really odd term because so many of the things are quite ancient, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then woo-woo, which was really popular when I started working online, that has always felt dismissive and yeah. infantilizing, right? And so I, I completely agree. And that was why I was looking for a better way to language the, the family of practices. Yeah, and for people who love words, it's actually a really big deal that you uh, came up with this. Okay, now in your writing about what are the sacred arts, I pulled out this sentence that I wanna talk to you about. My fundamental standpoint is that a great body of interrelated sacromagical practices, which have been the global norm in civilizations, was thrust into darkness, occulted, as a consequence of complex historical factors. And I wanted to understand more about this. What were these complex historical factors that put this collection of practices that you named, ceremony, ritual, divination, astrology, magic, prayer, blessing, into this category known as a cult? So that's a really excellent question. And, you know, basically, my standpoint is that this is, it is the norm. And I'm very blessed to have clients 
not just in America or first world countries, but I have clients that are in third world countries and developing nations. And in many of those places where quote unquote progress hasn't quite made the inroads that it has here, um, many of these things are like, they're, it's just part of what you do. Like, of course you have your child's natal chart cast and interpreted, you know, I mean, what, who wouldn't do that? Of course, you have prayers that you open and close your day with. Like, why, why, why wouldn't you have those prayers? And so I think, you know, we're in, in developed, highly educated, more secular places around the world. We've lost the sense that this is what people do. We create ritual and ceremony and meaning. It is, it is part of what we do. It's part of how we are created. And so the forces then that drove that under, I mean, take your pick, right? Where do you want to start? We have forced migrations of people all around the world. And I mean, in a way, we're just starting to deal with the consequences of that. You know, we're just starting to recognize that entire groups of people have been forced off of lands out of relationships with lands and with places that that were fundamental to how they understood themselves as a people. And, and we have disease that has scattered various groups and various families and various tribes. I have a dear friend who is part of the Powake uh, Pueblo in New Mexico. And I talked with her a couple of years ago about the issue of appropriation, huge issue in our field, right? And she told me, she told a story that in her tribe, they had to go to all of the other Pueblo tribes to get their ceremonies back because an entire generation of elders had been wiped out by disease and they hadn't been able to pass down the knowledge. So these things are, they're, they're very much a part of the everyday, but because of the way that we've been forced to move because of disease, because of economic pressures, um, and because of shaming as well, right? Like, I mean, right now we're in a very interesting time where if you're you're interested in the sacred arts, there are some actually, there are some very good resources. There are places like Sounds True that are publishing really great books that dive into these subjects. But for a long time, if you were interested in this um, and you were in a country that's more developed and more educated, you know, people would make fun of you. People would use that against you. And so this is a, a time where I think we can call some of this knowledge back I see it resurfacing. But um, I mean, you know, the, the number of historical forces that have been at work in occulting it have just been vast. And, and they're global. They're, they're everywhere. And they've touched everyone's lives. Now, now you mentioned to me that uh, your clients call you Miss Bree, and I asked you if I could call you Miss Bree, and you said yes, so I'm just going to keep uh, going with that. So, uh, Miss Bree, I want to ask you this question, not in a spirit of shaming, and I really hope it doesn't come across that way, because that's not uh, the spirit I mean it in, and I say that because I feel in my heart and in my life a full embrace of ceremony, ritual, prayer, blessing, magic, et cetera. 
However, I do notice that there's part of my mind, and I don't think it's just been formed because of being raised in a culture of shaming. I think it's also been formed through a lot of critical thinking that comes up sometimes when I hear people in this world of sacred arts kind of taking things at face value and not questioning them and just assuming things are factual. And I, I don't quite know, and this is where I'd love some wisdom from you, of how I can both walk successfully, you seem to do it, in the world of critical thinking, rational thinking, questioning, looking for evidence, and a full embrace of the sacred arts. How do I do both? So I am such a fangirl of critical thinking, and I think that it's one of the big missing components in what I would term like the wider sacred arts community. And, and I, and, you know, I think it's because of exactly what you said. There is a way that these, you know, you read someone like Spinoza, right? My background is in classics. So you read someone like Spinoza and he very much is like, this is all superstition. And it's easy to look at many of the things that people across culture, across place do, and say, oh, there's a rational explanation for that, or oh, that is a superstition. And and you're not always wrong, right? Like, I think that discernment is key. Discernment is your best friend when you are walking that path of devoted to the sacred arts, um, but also taking full advantage of all of the boons and all of the blessings that rational thinking and critical thinking and reason have brought to us. And, and I think that one of the big problems within the community is a a shaming that happens kind of on the other side. And I, I have received this personally, which tells you to get out of your head um, and only be in your heart or only be in your body or, you know, as if, as if we're like able to take ourselves apart that way, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I look for, when I'm looking for people to learn from. And when I'm looking at my students, I just had a bunch of students come on board with me. I'm looking for people who are going to ask questions. I'm looking for people who are not afraid of using the full power of their reason, the full breadth and scope of their critical thinking and their analysis. And I'm looking for people who are even a little bit cynical. You know, I was raised, I think I told you the last time we talked, half of my family is Baptist. And, in, and you know, in if you're Baptist, you read the Bible, you know it, backwards and forwards. And one of the things that I always loved about biblical stories was how the prophets argued with God. You know, they were like, well, maybe... Maybe it could be more like this, you know, there is a, there is a negotiation and there is a give and there's a take and there's a questioning that is very, very old that I think many of our modern practices either lack or they've lost. And too many teachers or authorities in the field 
get their feathers ruffled when people ask them questions. And we should be able to ask questions. We should be able to to test our ideas and and to see, do they really hold up or not? Well, first of all, Ms. Bree, you're my kind of sacred arts teacher. So (laughs) thank you. Now, how do we take something like discernment and apply it to astrology? Your new book, Star Child, Joyful Parenting Through Astrology. And, you know, I think astrology is one of those things that, you know, depending on who you talk to, you get all kinds of reactions. So how do we bring discernment to it? So, you know, when I started working on Star Child and I knew I I would never have thought after making magic that this would be my next book. And but I knew that I was going to write it and I knew that I would write it for myself because I wanted to have it laid out. And I think discernment in astrology really begins with the understanding that astrology is not about pigeonholing. It is not about typecasting. It is not about putting people into boxes. It is not about saying, oh, you're a Libra. Now I have it all figured out, right? It is actually about the opposite. It is about expanding categories and jailbreaking us out of positions that are too narrow and and too shallow, right? So that's where... I start with discernment in astrology is just just reframing what it even is that we're doing because astrology, you know, where does it start? It starts in the sky. It starts in the stars. And can you think of anything that is vaster and bigger and deeper and less limited than space? Right? I can't. So it it serves then to reason that the mystical study of that realm, of that celestial realm, is also going to be vast and deep and limitless. And in many ways, astrology really is. People get started down the path of learning astrology and they quickly discover there's always more to learn. There's always more to discover. And that is absolutely true. And so discernment has to start with knowing that this is not about Putting, putting a label on who you are and what you're about, right? Every person contains all of the signs. And so this sacred art is really about relationships between these various celestial aspects and how they speak to your life here and now. Okay. But uh, just to ask a slightly challenging question here, which is the book Star Child is laid out with a chapter on each one of the signs of the zodiac, each one of the sun signs. And I can imagine a parent who gets the book immediately turns to the chapter that is the sun sign of their child. How do they get out of this pigeonholing kind of idea? Like they read all about you know, what it's like to have a Taurus child. How do you not pigeonhole? So hopefully they read the the chapters before we get into the sun signs because I talk about this and I tell them exactly not to do that. I think I write, you know, this is what you're going to want to do and I would like you to not do this. (laughs) 
So I hope that they begin there. But what they'll also find is that um, towards the end of each chapter, we have a section on the ascendant or the rising sign. We have a section on the moon sign. So maybe your child's moon sign is in Taurus, right? And we also have a section on the inner child. And so my hope with those sections is that we start to encourage parents and those who are doing inner child work and those who have children in their lives that they care about to think beyond the sun sign. Like the sun sign is a great place to begin, but it's a beginning, right? It's not where we want to stay. We want to be able to expand out from that information. And the other thing that I hope serves as a doorway into that are the stories themselves. So as you know, each chapter starts with a story that illustrates some of the essential qualities of each of these signs. Um, but the stories are different and they take us into different territories and they, you know, they'll bring up different things for people. And so I also hope that the stories function as doorways for people to say, wow, th there's a lot more to this than what I had originally understood. Now I want to look at my rising sign. Now I want to look at my moon sign. Now the other thing that will probably happen for some people as they look at these chapters is they'll come across a chapter and they'll think, that does not describe my child. You know, like my child is a Libra, but I've read the Libra chapter and that does not describe my Libra child. And so in those cases, it's especially important to go farther because often what's going on is, you know, you may have an individual who has, maybe their son is in Libra, but they may have a lot of other stuff in, say, Scorpio. And so you definitely would want to read that chapter and it might actually describe your child better. So, and that can be a good thing, right? If you read it and you're like, that's not my experience, that can actually be super helpful and encouraging you to take that next step. Okay. So in talking about astrology, you brought us to space. You brought us to the vastness of space. And you begin, Star Child, by emphasizing the importance of looking at the sky, stargazing. And you write that astrology and all star lore begins with the naked eye. And I wonder if you can share with us some practices, if you will, for a family that wants to appreciate the stars together. What would you suggest? And especially for those of us who might live in cities where it's not, it's not that easy. Yeah, cities are tough, right? Because of all of the all of the light. Um, so a really good place to begin is watching the moon, right? The moon is bright. It's usually pretty easy to find. And it changes. Its phase changes, as we know, all of the time. And there are are so many myths and there are so many stories about the moon. And, and it's not just conceptualized as feminine, like often that's how it's talked about. Um, but some, but in, in many of the oldest stories, the moon is a hunter. The moon is, you know, the hunting party. The moon is migration. Um, and so, 
it's it's a really great place to begin and it it starts to really orient the entire family because you know a lot of adults don't spend time looking at the sky either right we're busy and so looking at the moon starts to orient you with you know not only that it's changing but also its rise and its set what's actually happening when we have say a full moon or what's happening when we have a new moon the way that the angle of the earth and the moon work with one another, that's a great place to start. Now, if you wanted to take it a step further, of course, it's always great to identify things like the big and the little dipper, um, to identify where Polaris is. But I actually like to just begin with getting a sense of what a summer sky looks like as opposed to a winter sky because they change and the constellations that are visible are going to change as well. So that's those are really helpful places to start. And the moon works even in cities because it is so bright. For for stars, you might need to go to a place where you have a little bit more darkness, but there's a lot to be learned just from, from working with the moon. And I have students that I advise to work with the moon and to find the moon every day. And years later, they're still doing it. So that's a great practice. And can you say a bit more why you emphasize so much this naked eye sky gazing as part of understanding the star child material? So astrology is, you know, we go to the internet, right? We go, we go to the internet to try to understand all of the jargon and all of the terms. You know, it's it's a little, it's a little bit like wheels moving within wheels at some points. And it can start to feel very overwhelming and it can start to feel very complicated. And I really emphasize looking at the sky with your naked eye, like not even with a telescope, not with your iPhone app that tells you where the stars are. Like those things are great and they're fine. But this is what our way, way ancient ancestors did. They looked up at the sky and they noticed patterns and they noticed how those patterns spoke to other things like weather and food availability and where the best place to build the shelter might be. And they told stories. They created stories. I think some of our earliest stories come from looking at the sky. And when you go out with your children or with your loved ones and you go and you look at the stars, it's kind of like looking at clouds during the day. You'll find that you start to see patterns and we start to create stories about them. So I want people to remember astrology has been developed for millennia. It's gone through a a lot of different historical periods. It's gone through a lot of different academic periods. And I want people to understand that while there are some terms that you want to be familiar with and there is some jargon that's going to come up, you're going to, you're going to see it or you're going to read it. I want people to understand that that's not where it starts. It starts with our immediate relationship to what's happening, not only above us, but all around us because we're surrounded by the stars, right? Not just above our heads, but all around our planet. Now you link 
a story, uh, a myth or a fairy tale to each one of the sun signs. And I'm curious how you came up with that linkage. Well, as you know, I love story and I have many stories that I, that, you know, I've heard or they've been given to me or I've come across in my own work. And I've always, because I am an astrologer, as well as a storyteller, I've always noticed that certain stories have a kind of feel to them that would, for me, evoke the energy of a specific sign's qualities. And so I, I started there. And I and as I went through, they really the stories really stepped forward and and were very insistent about, you know, this is the story for this. I knew that the Fisher King would be the story for Pisces um, long before I had the Pisces chapter written. I knew that the Bamboo Princess would be the story for Leo long before Leo had been written, and that was interesting. Um, because I I hadn't made a conscious decision to represent stories from around the world. You know, I was just going to let the stories show up and, and then work with them. Um, but it turned out, as it happened, as these things go, we do have stories from around the world. And, and I like that because the language of astrology is one that we find around the world. It's not necessarily the same as, you know, Western astrology coming out of Babylon, but it's we every culture has their own star lore and every culture has their own um, astrology. And so I, I like the fact that I was able to bring in stories from various cultures that speak to some of these themes. You write in the book, astrology literally means the speech of the stars. I thought that was so beautiful. <laughs> I, you know, thank you, ancient Greek, right? Like, uh, yeah, astra logos. It's the, it's the speech um, and the thought, but really, really logos, I think, is best translated as speech of the stars. And so I, I love it too. And I think that's exactly what it is. It, it encourages us to not just learn the language of astrology, but also to listen, right? And the sense that stars might have something, that the heavens, the firmament might have something to tell us, you know, in the same way that I, I absolutely believe that a tree has something to share if we know how to listen to it. We're reading Tolkien right now. And in my family, my husband reads it before we go to sleep. And, you know, we we got through the Ents, the part with the Ents. And Ents tell their stories very slowly because they're these great ancient beings. They're these great ancient trees. And so I like that that we're coming into a time where we're able to see that many of the things we we tend to think of as not having speech actually do have a kind of speech. It's just it's just different. We have to learn to listen to it in a different way. I thought as a way to make this real for our listeners and to let them enjoy your terrific storytelling gifts, we could 
you could share a story that links to, ready for this, to the child of our engineer on Insights at the Edge, who was born on January 12th, a Capricorn child. And you start this section of the book with the story, The Elves and the Shoemaker. And I wonder if you can both share the story and also let us know how this might start our engineer on a journey of inquiry and curiosity through the story about his Capricorn daughter. Yes, I love it. So let's start with the story. And then, and then I'll talk about why this is particularly appropriate for a Capricorn child and what the parent of a Capricorn child might want to really focus on in the story. So once upon a time, we were walking across the land and our feet were protected by the most beautiful shoes, leather stitched on leather, inscribed, carved, embroidered with silk, firmly sold. And these shoes that were able to walk the land and listen to something of what it has to say were crafted by a man in a village not so very far away. Our shoemaker was known far and wide for the excellence that he brought to his craft the patience that he took with every single slipper, the care that he took from the beginning of the project to the very end. He was thorough, sure-fingered, and excellent at all that he did. And because he was so gifted, and because his work was so very fine, and because he himself always wanted something more and something better, especially for his lovely wife. He grew busier and busier with more and more orders for shoes. As joyful as this made our shoemaker, it enraged his lovely wife. She had not she said, married him only to never see him, only to hear him work toiling day and night in his workshop at his bench. She had not, she said, married him so that he could spend more time with lifeless leather and board and paste and embroidery floss than he did with her. What mattered most was not another order or more gold in the pocket 
but the time that they spent together. Ugh. The shoemaker was so distressed. But my love, he said, I'm doing this for you, I'm doing this for us. And she simply raised a brow, as if to ask, who are you really doing this for? And she turned, and she walked away. And not long after, the bell over his shop door rang, and another order for another set of shoes came in. Well, the shoemaker was at a loss. He wanted to please his wife, and he was devoted absolutely to his craft. And so he sat at his bench as the day came to an end, knowing that he needed to go home, wanting to go home, but also knowing how much work still was before him. And he felt low, and he felt sad, and he remembered his mother, God rest her, who was no longer with him, but had taught him that when he felt low and when he felt sad, he could always call upon the fairies. He could leave an offering, a bowl of milk in the corner of whatever room he was in, and they would come and they would brighten his day. And so laughing at himself, he did exactly that. Poured the cool milk into a clay bowl, placed it into the corner of his workshop. He blew out the lanterns, he closed the door, he locked it, and home he went. Where his wife was somewhat surprised to see him, actually home on time, and delighted. And they feasted together and made love that evening. When the shoemaker returned to his workshop the next day, he found something quite curious. All of the shoes that had not yet been made from all of the orders that had not yet been filled were lined up perfectly, every detail exactly in place. There was no one to be seen, nothing to hear, no note, no letter, no explanation for how this miracle had come to be. And so for the first time in years, the shoemaker was able to close early and to return home and to be with his wife. Of course, when one is excellent at one's craft, one is always in demand. And so, by that afternoon, even more orders had come in. The shoemaker went back to his workshop, began working, grew so tired that he actually fell asleep at his table. And it was then, deep in dream, that he heard the sound of bells the sound of chimes, the sound of tiny little pitter-patters, almost like raindrops falling on his work table and his workbench. One eye slowly opened, and he saw tiny little people 
dressed in beautiful colors, scurrying this way and that, picking up silver shears and ribbon, needles and embroidery, paste and board and leather and silk, and crafting the most beautiful shoes. And he knew then that his mother was right. Yet these were the fairies, the fae, the elves, the little people, and that they were thanking him for the small offering of milk that he had made. He stayed still the way that you do when you're trying to gain an animal's trust. But he watched with that one open eye as they toiled. And when they were finished, they cleaned everything up just as he liked and disappeared. And so in return, once they were gone, having taken count and measure in his mind, he created tiny shoes, perfect in every detail, exquisitely beautiful for each one of the elves that had helped him fill his order. Once he was finished, he went home, gave his wife a huge kiss and told her that he would, from this day forward, be able to spend more time with her for he had found the right helpers and he knew how to honor them. And that day marked the beginning of a beautiful relationship between the shoemaker and his elves who would help whenever there was need and who were thanked by always having the most exquisite shoes. So let's talk about what this says about Capricorn. Capricorn, our, our goat, it actually was conceived of as a sea goat for most of astrological history, at least in the West. And what I like about this story is that the work ethic that the cobbler or the shoemaker brings is not, there's no shame around it. And this is super important for people born under the sign of Capricorn and also those who have a lot of Capricorn in their chart, right? Because Capricorn influenced people love to work. They take pride in their work. Calling them a workaholic is probably like the nastiest thing you could do. They they see a work ethic as something that informs like their whole character. And they do good work. And they are excellent. Capricorn is the sign of excellence and mastery at a specific skill. It is an energy that anyone who's looking to get better at something 
should call in, right? Like call it into your life, call it into your room, because this is this is the energy of a master. This is somebody who's going to work until they have every detail perfect. And, and that's what our shoemaker does. And he is successful. And, and worldly success is important for Capricorns. Again, like we're not shaming. We're not interested in shaming. We're interested in understanding. Worldly success, recognition, honor. I worked really hard. I developed this skill. I want the reward. I want the recognition. I want to be the best. I want to be seen as the best. This matters. This is a way to acknowledge the gifts that Capricorn brings into our lives, right? We all have really fine things like fine clothes and fine handbags because somewhere out there, there's a Capricorn demanding that it be that awesome. And, and there's a shadow side, right? The shadow side is what really matters. Sometimes Capricorn can get caught up in the doing and can be so nose to the grindstone. I also think about tarot cards for every story and this, the tarot card that I think of for the shoemaker and the elves is the eight of coins, if people are familiar with that one, right? It's like he's carving out the coin. His nose is to the grindstone. So like Capricorn, we can have, and we can, we can be very focused on the work at hand and forget that there are other things that are as important or more important than work. And that work is here to support our life, that your life is not here to support your work. And that honoring those other things like a lovely wife, a lovely husband, a lovely dad or mom is something that actually will make our work all the sweeter. So those are those are some of the things that I would take. So, you know, congratulations again on your sweet baby girl. So she'll she'll be into what she's into, right? She's going to be super focused. She's going to be super intense about it. She's going to like to work at the things that she likes to work at. If she doesn't care about something, then she probably won't won't want to mess with it at all. Um, grades might be really important to her. A lot of times Capricorns are like, I, but I need to get a really good grade on the test and I need to have really good grades on my report card. You know, um, she, she will value metrics that tell her that she's improving and, and they like rewards. They like shiny things, you know, with a Capricorn child, easy, they, they tend not to be behaviorally, um, more challenging, like some of our other signs, but easy, positive reinforcement here. Like, you know, give her a medal, give her a shiny gold sticker, like literally give her a gold star. She will be so happy. You know, these are the things that will really help her come into her own and support her and and let her get into what she gets into, but also keep her balanced, right? Keep her tethered to the bigger picture and the things that restore her and the things that replenish her, remind her to take care of herself. And as a little bitty baby, she's going to be super tactile. She's, you know, earth signs, all of the earth signs, that's Capricorn, Virgo, 
Virgo and Taurus, they they often communicate more through touch than they do through word. And so being held, being snuggled, of course we do that with with you know all little babies, but she will really like that. Um, they will she will like order most likely like things to be everything in its place and a place for everything is very much something and the shoemaker has that with his instruments and his materials right they all live in a certain place so those are some of the things that i would draw out from that story gorgeous uh, you know, a couple things, Miss Bree. One, I've worked with some Capricorns, and I wish I worked with more. I wish we could hire hundreds of them. That sounds true. They're the best, you know, for business. Yeah. But I'll tell you something that really um, floored me is that you just told that story right here spontaneously. And <laughs> I wanted to understand a little bit more what's going on for you. Do you shut your eyes and sort of see a film? Like, you know, this is a story I want to tell. I just asked you to tell the story of the elves and the shoemaker. And then it unfolds like frame by frame in your mind and you're describing it or how does it work for you? So I do close my eyes and I try to listen to what parts of the story. Re so, okay, I let's take a step back. I see stories as, as beings, right? Like I see them as beings. And somebody asked me how my writing process began. I was being interviewed about Star Child, you know, when I first am, am asked to write a book. And I actually, I told them, you know, I make an altar, right? I make a sacred space for the book. And I invite the book in because I think that these creative ideas are, they have, they have shape, they have form, they have life, right? So same with stories. They have shape, they have form, they have life. So I close my eyes so that I can call it in and call it out. And, and then I, and as I'm telling it, I'm feeling it doesn't unfold frame by frame. I like I like that. I wish sometimes that it would, but it, but I listen to what parts need to come out, and I never tell a story the same way twice because because I can't right because depending on who I'm talking with and what the situation is, something's going to come out in this telling that doesn't come out in another telling, and so that's that's how I do it and. And I listen and I take my time. You know, you can give, when you're telling a story, you can give it some room. Your, your listeners, I know when I listen to a story or even when I listen to music, like, you know, I, I like it when people let it have a little room to move around. So, and as I'm giving it that room, I'm listening, okay, what, what needs to come out next? What's important? Like in this story, the shoemaker and his wife made love. Now, I don't have that in the story in the book. I think she gets pregnant in the story in the book, but I don't actually bring out their lovemaking. But this time that needed to be said. And, and it makes sense because there's a sensual component to Capricorn as well that obviously wanted to be heard. So that's that's how I work it. Well, you are gifted, I have to say. It's awesome. Awesome. I could listen to you tell stories all day. But instead, I'm going to ask you this other question, which is <laughs> you mentioned how 
the book Star Child, we could use it to apply to the children in our life, as we just did with our engineer's Capricorn child, or we could look at our own inner child. And I'm wondering, I want to hear a little bit more about that. And in this case, uh, I'll go ahead and throw myself out there as a proud Leo. How, <laughs> how will the Star Child book help me with my inner child? So I, you know, this part really came in the writing of the book. And as I was working with the each of the signs, you know, I realized that every single sign has heard something negative, like in Aries, I'll use Aries as an example before I get to Leo. With Aries, it's like, you know, be quiet, you know, because Aries are often pretty loud. Not always, but often they're pretty loud. With Leo, the the message is often like, get out of the way, or who do you think you are? You know, Leos are Leos are amazing. They're the sun. You know, they're they are heart. And they're often one of the signs that gets critically, as I'm sure you know, um, critically treated in like astrological write-ups because people are like, oh, they're selfish and they're egotistical. But Leos are actually, they are, they are love and they are generosity. And when they are, when they are functioning and they're supportive and, and in, in their best place, they pour that out onto everybody else and they stand in the spotlight, but they encourage every single person around them to stand in the spotlight as well, right? In whatever way and whatever form is appropriate for each person. So Leos though, the, when, when you're growing up as a little Leo, you're often told to, you're something along the lines of get out of the way or move or let somebody else have a turn or, you know, um, don't, don't take up the center of the stage, you know, back off. And, and Leo part of, and so I was, you know, writing this and I was like, you know, Every sign has its gifts, every sign has its challenges, but then every sign also has kind of wounds that that we sustain. And that is what I wanted to speak to with the inner child work. I wanted that inner child Leo. And to be clear, you you may, you know, when reading this book, may feel like you know, they, it may not be their sun sign. So like, you know, I might be a Libra, but, but I might've been told to get out of the way. And so this is where I need to do my healing work is around the Leo inner child. And so when you're, when you're doing that, first of all, we just acknowledge it like, oh, there, there was this thing that was said, or there were these things that were done and they hurt and they caused wounds. And, you know, Let's, let's heal that. Let's see what medicine we can bring to that. Let's, you know, I, and I think of it very viscerally, like, you know, let's, let's comb out that lion's mane and let's, you know, let's get that lion looking sleek and happy and healthy and, and not feeling ashamed for being its beautiful leonine self. And so that's what the inner child piece was really about. It was really realizing that, you know, whatever your sign happens to be, each one of these signs, and again, we all have all of them, have wounds that that they carry just from being in the world. You know, nobody's necessarily to blame. Um, 
And so you want to, you want to, you want to look at that and you want to address that and putting it in terms of astrology, I think is a really helpful way to start to do that. Two final questions uh, I want to make time for here, Miss Bree. One is as the book comes to a close, Star Child, you talk about the power of seeing our children really for who they are, and that in this, we're taking good care of our descendants. And that makes good sense to me, perfect sense. The thing that really got my attention is when I was reading about your work with sacred arts that you include in the community of practices that you offer and teach through sacred arts, lineage and legacy. And I wanted to understand more about that, how it's a sacred practice to look at our lineage and legacy and how this work with Star Child helps us with that. So we have ancestor work and, and honoring our ancestors and recognizing the gifts and the problems and the challenges in our lineage is work that a lot of people are doing right now. And, and it's awesome. And I love to see it. And, and, it, and it continues to happen. And it's happening, uh, you know, it's happening collectively and it's happening individually. Our legacy is an awareness of the ones that come after us. And the way that I was always taught this is that you're cleaning the waters of your lineage, right? It's a river. It's a river that's flowing forward and it's flowing through you and through your life. And you're cleaning the waters of your lineage so that the ones that come after you are going to drink the cleanest water possible and that they don't have as much cleaning to do, right? We want to leave things better than we found them. We want to leave things cleaner than we found them. And that is legacy work. And it's not talked about as much. And the descendants, I was just talking to a friend who studies with a traditional South American shaman and and it's the first time that I heard descendants mentioned outside of the work that I do. And I was like super pumped to hear it because I know that it has traditional roots, but you just, it's not in our lingo yet, like widely. And the idea of descendants is that it's not just whether or not you have children, right? We all have descendants. We all have a legacy that we're leaving. Our lives have touched so many other lives, which in turn touch so many other lives. And we have work that we bring through us. Like I said, I see stories as beings. I see a book as a, as a creature with a shape and a form that gets to come through or not, depending on what I do. So those are the things that make up our legacy. Those are the things that are our descendants. And part of the work that I want us to be able to collectively do is see our descendants more clearly and be able to it not only envision, but really call forward and do the practical work of fashioning a future for them that's a clean river, 
It's a clean, nourishing river that supports and sustains as opposed to diminishing. And, and so, and I feel that many, there are many ways to do that. Astrology is a really good way because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a temptation as a parent, especially, but as anyone who has children in their lives, um, but even with with things like a book, to think that there's a one-size-fits-all approach. This is the way you write a book. This is the way you raise a child. This is what a two-year-old is. And, it, you know, if you've had children or written books or created a business, right, or done anything, <laughs> done any kind of creative act, you know that that's not true absolutely not true. There's, there's the way that you're going to do it. And, and part of that hopefully is informed by what the thing that you're creating needs or asks for or demands. And, and that's where astrology can be really helpful in letting us see this is going to be supportive to this kind of a child. And I, and I'm not going to worry about this thing over here that maybe, it, you know, that some people are saying is a problem, but but I know that it's not. My oldest is a very heavy Pisces. He has a lot in Pisces, incredibly gifted artist, incredibly gifted musician. When he was little, the teachers were like, mm, he's not very social. You know, and I knew I was like, that'll it'll come and it has, and I'm not I'm not gonna worry about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna get that piano under his fingers because I know that's going to be a way for him to process. All of those big feelings through music, through something beautiful. And so that's the kind of that's the kind of visionary capacity that we need to bring to all the things that we're creating and all the things that we're nurturing and the world that we're setting up for those those various beings to live in. Mm-hmm. And just to uh, underscore something here, we started our conversation talking about sacred arts, what are they? How did they get lost and how do we honor them in our time? And I think it certainly, uh, in many people's minds, if they were to make a list of sacred arts, they might be ceremony, ritual, divination, astrology, magic, I'm with you. But lineage and legacy, you're, you're the first person I've heard include those words when listing off these other kinds of, I'll use the word, metaphysical art forms. And I think it, it, in a way it completes it for me. It's so important for me. So I want to thank you for that and just underscore it. Uh, well, it is, you know, I, I have said, I wrote Making Magic for my ancestors. My ancestors were in many cases not listened to. They, they didn't have a voice for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and I talk with them. And I said, this is the book I'm going to write for you. And Star Child was, is the one that I wrote for my children, but for this, also for this idea of the descendants. Because again, when we look at, and when we look at places that are closer to these practices, they've, they've been doing it more or less without interruption. You know, this is where it starts and ends. It ends with it starts and ends with your beloved dead, the people who went before you, who literally made your life possible, and and with the ones who come after. That that we are, you know, in our actions determining what they inherit. And so, 
that, I mean, talk about discernment. When you, when you live in between those two awarenesses, you have to be really discerning because there's a lot writing on what you do. Final question here for you, Miss Bree. You write in the book, Star Child, that the earliest astrologers were also magicians. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then I thought, okay, I'm talking to someone right now who's an astrologer magician. And I'm talking to them at this critical time, in my view, in human history. Many people say that we're now in, we've just entered the most critical decade for humanity in terms of will we shift our collective structures and systems so that we can have the kind of future descendants and legacy that we want to have. What do you have to say as an astrologer magician about this next decade that we're in? What's your view? My view is that, you know, it is it is time to get on the bus, right? My view is that we um we we don't have time to waste. And these, you know, the sacred arts practices that we've been talking about throughout this conversation help us live in a more meaningful and a more aware way. And that right now, awareness and right relationship are of paramount importance. And I I feel like we can, I, I feel like people can get there without the sacred arts, but I feel like it's way easier when we integrate this part of our history and this part of our lineage into our lives. And from a magical perspective, you know, astrologically, a lot of astrologers have been talking about how this next decade, I mean, we, we are going to see certain things that we thought would never give way, giving way like that. It, it is, it will happen. Like what, what are you referring to when you say I that? think that we're going to see a lot of the societal institutions that we've sort of always like banking as we've always understood it, uh, economics as we've always understood it, um, protection and security as we've always understood it. And of course, I'm putting always in quotes. Those things are going to be changing. I mean, they're already changing, but we're going to see massive change in those kinds of institutions. And, and, you know, we're, and, and as a magician, what I would say is like, look at alchemy, baby. Like there's gonna, you know, in order for something new to come in, something has to die right you don't you don't get to you don't you don't get to add energy to it without some kind of a sacrifice some way of making something sacred and so we need to get comfortable with the give and the take and so magically what that means to me is you need to keep your house in order. You need to keep your internal house in order. And you need to keep your eye on, on what you're devoted to, what, what really gives you meaning and what your purpose is. Because in the next 10 years, there's going to be so much that would take you away from that. And, and I firmly believe, right? I believe every, every single person is is uniquely gifted to be a blessing in the world and a blessing to one another. Even the ones that make me want to tear my hair out. Even the ones that I'm like, is it possible? And so 
that being clear about your purpose and being centered in yourself and keeping that internal house in order are going to be really, really critical. I'm not like personally, I am not a huge fan of, of sitting practices. I have always had a hard time with them, but I do them. I do them partly because I have a hard time with them. And I also do them because I feel like um, stillness practices amid the storm are, are very good magic and very good medicine for the time that we're in. I've been talking to the founder of the Sacred Arts Academy, someone who, you don't just inspire me, I feel awestruck by you and your work, Brianna Sousey. She's the author of a previous book with Sounds True called Making Magic, Weaving Together the Everyday and the Extraordinary, and a new book called Star Child, Joyful Parenting Through Astrology. Miss Bree, I hope we can talk again soon. Yes, I would love it. Thank you so much, Tammy, for having me. I so appreciate it. And your questions, as always, are just beyond excellent. They are the cat's meow. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.